Welcome to the Easel Studio Podcast. This is the audio version of an episode that was originally broadcast on easel.eu. If you wish to watch rather than listen, go to Easel Campus to see all the episodes on demand. Welcome to Easel Studio, your weekly hepatology broadcast news. In today's episode, we're going to review with you the NAFLD Summit hosted by Easel this year from September 15th to 17th in Dublin, Ireland. And we, that is Professor Amalia Gastaldelli from Pisa, Italy, Professor Manolis Tosatis from London, UK, and my name is Frank Tucker from the Charité University Medicine in Berlin. And the three of us had the pleasure to organize this event uh, on behalf of ESEL. And I have to say it was a wonderful event. Um, it was really the, the positioning of our field. That means uh, review the latest science, present new scientific data, but also share insights on the practical management of uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in, in our daily practice and actually discuss many of the open issues in the field. But first of all, it was a scientific event, I have to say, and maybe um, I take the, the liberty to ask Manolis, um, among the original abstracts, I mean, we had, I think, uh, 250 abstract submissions, we were able to present 180 abstracts in total. What would be one of the highlights that you remember from this ESO summit? Well, I was uh, pleasantly surprised by the high quality of the abstracts presented and also the interaction in the poster area. Uh, it was truly great to, to have face-to-face uh, -face events again and see the researchers uh, interacting. Uh, for me, uh, there are many candidates, but what really stood out was uh, a randomized uh, double-blind placebo-controlled trial of uh, fecal microbiota transplantation. Uh, this was from a group in uh, Leiden in the Netherlands, 20 patients randomized uh, to either uh, allogenic or uh, autologous fecal transplantation. Uh, the primary endpoint was uh, change in fat using MRI PDFF. There was no change there, but I don't think that uh, the study was sufficiently powered for that. For me, it was a safe, uh, a safe procedure and also acceptable by patients because, uh, well, in a chronic condition, you don't know how acceptable such a procedure would be. There was a slight decrease in the triglycerides in, uh, in the allogenic transplantation group. And there are other secondary endpoints that were not presented, but will be analyzed. It's, a, it's an interesting therapeutic strategy. What was not presented was the severity of liver disease. In, in the participants. And I would be also uh, interested in, in your view. Do you think there is a window of uh, opportunity to use, to use this treatment in terms of liver disease severity? Yeah, I, I think it's, the, the challenge is that we have a chronic disease that is so much influenced by, by some factors. And I guess we'll, we'll get back to that point. For instance, uh, microbiota, the diet is influenced by the microbiota, genetic factors, how you respond to certain threats and, and injury signals. So I wonder whether 
a short-term intervention, as it was done in the trial, would lead to then a sustainable change in the microbiota in a way that we would need despite the diet. So I think like in as part of like a lifestyle change and maybe augmenting some of the um, beneficial metabolic processes you would induce by, by lifestyle would be very meaningful. Um, and then this could be in addition to that. But uh, I mean, Amalia, you're the, the expert here on metabolism on the gut liver axis. Um, how do you view these studies on impacting the microbiome? Well, I think this is an interesting area to begin with because uh, uh, it has been shown that uh, fecal transplantation could lead to, um, to weight loss. This uh, at least was very powerful in, in animals. I think it's not really sustainable probably in humans because the study so far, they found that after an initial decrease, they probably go back to the uh, usual um, microbiota environment. But uh, it, it is very interesting because uh, microbiota are especially the good microbiota or the um, richness in the different population as uh, also some of the speakers uh, spoken into, into in this Napoli summit. I think it's very important also because they produce good metabolites for example, short-chain fatty acids, and also they produce bad metabolites, they produce alcohol. So I think it, that will be, you know, shifting from uh, the bad to the good microbiota for sure. It's uh, It will be uh, the, the challenge for the future. Um, I don't know if this will be uh, sustainable with this approach, but for sure, I think it's an interesting area to look at. Yeah, I think also, as Manolis mentioned, the feasibility of such an intervention is also a big step forward. Amalia, do you have an abstract that you would highlight or you would pick? Well, I've seen many interesting absurds, as you as you said, and also was impressed by the uh, large number of absurds that have been presented uh, this year. Um, to me, there was uh, an in vitro study that uh, was interesting because it was look at uh, the crosstalk between uh, liver and muscle because uh, they uh, they look at um, uh, the effect of uh, uh, what is secreted by the um, the hepatocytes that were incubated with fatty acid and became a fatty fatty hepatocyte sites and that they had a bad effect on muscle cells and that they induce atrophy. And this is interesting because we know that NAFLD patients, they usually are sarcopenic, even if they're not completely obese, but at least, you know, that they have a reduction in muscle mass. And we know that muscle, it's very important for metabolism, insulin sensitivity, and so on. So I think it's very important to, to go further into this uh, topic also to understand the uh, the mechanism that links uh, uh, the um, because usually you know cirrhotic patients they are sarcopenic but you know this is uh, probably sarcopenia starts much earlier it's not an effect uh, just of cirrhosis or liver fibrosis but it starts much earlier there are some mechanism or maybe hepatokines that signal something to the muscle i think this is an interesting area also to look into that yeah. Manolis, do you take that into account in the daily practice at the moment? Um, and what would be like dietary or physical activity interventions that, that you recommend? I mean, Great. understanding the molecular mechanisms is fantastic, uh, but can we already draw some conclusions? It's very interesting. There are uh, data coming out from my group uh, showing that uh, myosteatosis is prevalent even in uh, patients with NAFLD who, who don't have any any liver damage, you know, no fibrosis 
no inflammation. So it seems to be something that uh, that starts uh, very early. And uh, well, it is like uh, the, chi the chicken and the egg, but uh, I guess that uh, you need to be even more prescriptive on uh, exercise in this uh, in these patients. And probably also on diet, you know, we had discussed about the diet and micronutrients, but for sure, diet is also very important, uh, the quality of food. And uh, we know that uh, the type of micronutrients and uh, also the access to this type of food that is very important. And also during the summit, uh, uh, there have been concern about uh, some um, um, part of the population, maybe the ones with low income that are not, they do not have access to high quality food. And this could become worse with this climate change due to the fact that these good healthy food are increasing in price and due to all these uh, changes. And uh, this could also worsen the metabolic disease in particular of the liver disease. Maybe I can also like highlight an essay. I, I have to agree with the two of you that having interactive discussions at the e-posters and also a poster blast where we had like young scientists presenting in three minutes their work, uh, almost like an investor's pitch, uh, was uh, truly uh, exciting and uh, I enjoyed that very much. The one um, thing or the one abstract I would like to highlight uh, was dealing with gremlin 1, uh, a molecule I had not known before, I have to say. There was another poster presented showing that gremlin 1 is an antagonist of BMP, which is the bone morphogenic protein. Those are proteins working antifibrotic. We know this for a long time. But apparently there's a natural antagonist called gremlin 1 that is upregulated and NAFLD patients and also in, in animal models of NAFLD. And the one um, abstract uh, by Paul Horn and uh, Phil Newsom from Birmingham actually investigated the drugability of this pathway. And I have to say, we're, we're dealing with so many um, potential drug candidates. So it's really important to have very solid preclinical trials. In the end, the abstract was showing that targeting gremlin 1 does not prevent fibrosis progression in NAFLD. Um, so it's probably not a good target, but what I really enjoyed is the thoroughness of the science and the rigor behind that. And I think that is also giving us some idea when we choose our targets to really look very broadly. So they have used uh, liver slices, in vitro, uh, single cultures, uh, multicellular cultures, um, animal models, they had to use rats because it's not expressed in mice. And they had an antagonist uh, by a pharmaceutical company that worked beautifully, really inhibited what it should inhibit, but it was not effective enough as a single treatment um, to, to overcome fibrosis progression. And having this type of very solid data actually will hopefully lead the field forward because we are really choosing our targets more wisely. And that is something which is an important message, I think, that, that came out also from the NAFLD Summit when we reviewed together with really the key experts in the field. And we had fantastic speakers going with us through all the data and emerging um, topics and emerging drug candidates. And I think it's very important to have this uh, scientific rigor in the preclinical work. But might I ask you something, Frank, uh, because you mentioned that this was a very thoroughly done abstract uh, and piece of work. So, so was this because uh, this was too, too downstream to, uh, to have an impact of, on fibrosis? And you mentioned also something else. 
or do you imply that an antifibrotic agent alone will not be enough for Nuffield and, and you need a combination with an anti-metabolic drug? Uh, yes, uh, may I add something? We uh, we, uh, we uh, heard uh, also that left Schumann saying that uh, we have uh, the insult of inflammation that is followed by fibrosis. So before you have inflammation and then you have fibrosis and then so you have uh, something that is maybe more related to metabolism. So do you think uh, we should uh, target both at the same time? Yeah, I mean, those are excellent questions and I, I cannot answer it for, for this particular compound. Um, I guess it's probably true that we have um, counteracting pathways. If we just block a single pathway and we are very much downstream and we don't really take uh, the foot from the, from the gas pedal, then we will probably um, find in the biological system ways to circumvent um, uh, any any intervention that we do and that was I think in the in the sessions where we highlighted why clinical trials fail there were many interesting considerations and one was the patient heterogeneity another aspect was um, are we too downstream are we too narrow do we have um, are we really targeting the target as we as we want to um, and this was really reviewed for a lot of the drugs that failed in phase three clinical trial by really leading experts that uh, were also involved in the in the clinical development of, of these drugs that provided very good insights uh, that let me think that uh, targeting a single pathway very downstream is probably not successful on the long run, that we really need to work as we discussed it in the case-based studies in a, in a multidisciplinary team really targeting different aspects of the pathogenesis of the disease at the same time. I mean, um, Amalia, you, you, you chaired the session where they looked into the future, how to personalize uh, these approaches. Uh, what would be your take on, on the management? Well, you know, um, I think before answering your question, I think I have to highlight that I was very interested about uh, uh, the fact that uh, um, there is also heterogeneity in the reading of the biopsy and that, you know, um, not only we are probably too downstream, but also probably the way in which we are looking at the disease, but just trusting a biopsy that is just a small piece and uh, there is a lot of variability in the reading, there is a lot of variability um, also in uh, probably you are not taking the entire sample homogeneous of the liver because the liver is not homogeneous and so that is also another problem in this uh, trial so um, for sure the new technologies as you said will help on this this artificial intelligence in looking at the biopsy or maybe you know switching also to other imaging especially for uh, liver fibrosis I think uh, uh, the imagings are, um, are already you know um, well uh, defined and uh, probably trustable we will have an entire image of, of the Liver. And of course, you know, we cannot do it for um, ballooning and uh, for, uh, for inflammation. So we will not have, a, without a biopsy, a, a clear definition of NASH. But uh, for, uh, for the fibrosis, maybe, you know, we, we should uh, get not only the type of treatment, also the type of uh, um, way in which we look at the progress uh, or, uh, you know, the stop of the progress of the disease. Uh, and I think the new uh, technical, um, uh, the new technology, artificial 
intelligence, the reading and so on will help. And together with some biomarkers uh, new from lipidomics or metabolomics, maybe I think, you know, the important things will be to find something for inflammation because uh, we don't have anything just for hepatic inflammation. We have general inflammation, but not hepatic inflammation. Yeah, Manolis, there was a lot of discussion about liver biopsy, how to read histology, what are the confounders, what explains intra-observer intra um, variability in reading the biopsies. Uh, how would you summarize um, the discussions and what is your take-home message for, for the future? Okay, well, I mean... Some of the factors that uh, led to several phase three trials failing was probably the over-optimistic interpretation of the of the phase two trials, and and you know uh, what we have uh, is uh, the histological assessment as a primary endpoint, uh, which does have inter and intra-observer variability. And uh, you add uh, the placebo response to this. And uh, you need a fairly large trial to be able to have very reliable conclusions. I, I mean, we had a lot of discussion about ballooning. Uh, my, my personal view, I know people might disagree with this, is uh, that it should be dropped uh, as uh, a, a method of... Uh, treatment response, of evaluating treatment response. Uh, we, we could have uh, portal inflammation, for instance, which is not part at the moment that is, uh, is uh, linked to, to outcomes. And then I think what we need, in a way, uh, is a change of, of thinking because, you know, we, we might have composite endpoints. If we have several markers going towards the same direction, I would have much more confidence on how a drug is working or not working, rather than have just a single histological measure. For instance, if you have a positive, a positive signal from histology, and this goes uh, along with a positive sign in transaminases, and a positive sign in non-invasive fibrosis markers, I think then you have more confidence in, in, in what is a true response. And I think this needs some further discussions with, uh, with the regulators. But I think that the current endpoints uh, do not do justice to the field. We, we might be uh, losing good drugs. Uh, we might uh, lose money going from phase two to, to phase three. We need, we need, something needs to change. Mm. And, Amalia, and my impression was we had... Um, representatives from EMA and FDA present with us discussing very vividly. They seem to be open at least to the idea of uh, using AI in the, at least in the co-assessment of, of, of liver biopsies and kind of, uh, they, they seem to be at least open to the idea that, that the current endpoints may not do justice uh, Maybe we drop some drugs too early. Maybe we, we kind of set the bar to, to something that has such a high variation that it's almost impossible to reach with a reasonable number of patients. Of course, we don't want to expose patients uh, to placebo if, if not necessary, if we would have an active drug. What is your impression on these artificial intelligence, machine learning-based approaches to, to better but, yeah. apprehending disease severity? 
of course, you know, especially the one applied to the um, uh, to the radiological, the radio um, AI. It's very interesting because uh, uh, there you have less uh, influence, uh, and then you know you read the, the image always with the same uh, um, uh, criteria, so you don't have all the intersubject uh, variability. Uh, in, so the you know we have seen uh, recent papers where you know ten uh, different uh, pathologists they read the same biopsy in different ways. So I think that will uh, will help. To in these uh, things, uh, of course, you know, if you go also to, uh, that would be important for um, having not only the biopsy, but also other imaging tools. That would be very important, in my opinion, also because in the future, I don't think uh, we will treat uh, uh, patients just based on biopsy. And uh, I think the imaging tools will be uh, necessary. And then, you know, the earliest we will validate this, the better will be also for the patient treatment in the future. Also, because you can have several uh, interval time points, you can follow if the patient is really improving or not, because, you know, you can do MRI or um, uh, this MRI scanner, you know, every three months. I mean, it's just a matter of, of uh, cost is not uh, at all. Uh, so I think that is uh, something that we, it would be important to act with the regulator to find out a way to um, at least add these uh, imaging tools uh, and the AI to improve uh, the, yeah. the and quality. Then some suggestion was that AI may actually be provided to the reader so that he or she is being pointed towards this could yes. be a balloon cell, this could be an area of inflammation. Manolis, a lot of discussion was also related to the potential name change. Uh, should we call it NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Should we call it MAFLD, metabolic dysfunction associated fatty liver? Should we call it nutrition associated? Uh, what is the current state of, of the discussion? Uh, well, as, as, as you know, Frank, uh, there is at the moment uh, a process which is led by ISL and uh, ASLD uh, on, on the nomenclature. Uh, there have been two Delphi rounds so far and then in-person meeting in uh, Chicago. And there will soon be uh, a third uh, Delphi round and all uh, relevant stakeholders are involved, including uh, Ale and Apasl and uh, patient associations, and uh, also a wide range of practitioners from pathologists to pediatricians, pathologists. And uh, what th there was some very good discussion. Uh, and I think an important point was that uh, a name change is acceptable However, if this is uh, accompanied by a definition change, then this will create or might create problems in clinical trials and in the registration of uh, biomarkers. Uh, and I, I guess, you know, this is, this is a point that we need to uh, consider very, very carefully. Another point that we need to consider is that any name that we use should not be stigmatizing for patients. And uh, there was a very powerful talk uh, from a patient representative on the topic. Uh, so, you know, the, the truth is, I, I don't know what will happen with the name. Is it going to be nuffled, muffled? 
or fatty liver or fatty liver disease or with subtypes, I, I, I don't know. But my impression is that uh, we, should, we should make sure that we do not change significantly the definition of the disease. Yeah, and that we really unify um, the different societies uh, to, to come up with the consensus. I think this is extremely important for the process. But Amalia, one aspect that is reflected in this discussion is the, the heterogeneity of the disease and the different influencing factors. May it be alcohol, even at, at lower levels, may it be genetics, may it be environmental factors. And that, I think, became very clear from the different presentations that we need to take this into account and of the management and classifying the patients correctly. Yes, I agree. And, uh, uh, but uh, as um, Manoli said, uh, I think it's, uh, uh, we need to um, address what is the real cause of a disease. And then, of course, you, know, you have an additional cause that will make the disease worse. Because if you have just a metabolic disease, but you add on uh, the obesity, uh, severe obesity, or uh, the alcohol, or the bad food, then you know, your uh, disease is probably progressing much, uh, much faster. So, and especially, you know, for the environment, uh, it was a, there was an interesting talk about air pollution. You don't think that just breathing, you know, um, uh, microparticles will lead to fatty liver, but uh, probably this is uh, um, enough, you know, to, to get some pollutant to, to get, uh, you know, to interrupt your metabolism and uh, get uh, some trouble. And also Shira was uh, also talking about uh, some other, you know, pollutants uh, that are also found uh, in, uh, in the food that we know that there are also packaging, they act as a so-called endocrine disruptor. So we know that already something that uh, it could find uh, like in our food, it's, it's dangerous for us. And of course, you know, the, all the technology and so on come also with some uh, drawback. And uh, so we need to be careful, but also find the, the real cause of the disease. And then of course we know all these things make it worse. So we need to, to pay attention to all these different, uh, you know, yeah, modify the modifiable factors. As yeah. we're coming slowly towards the end, maybe I can ask Manolis, Amalia, and maybe share my own opinion. So Manolis, what is the hottest uh, drug candidate at the moment for you? By, I mean, we have reviewed so many data on clinical trials. We've seen some really interesting original work. So what is your hottest bet at the moment? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult question, Frank, because, for instance, you know, the, the week of the conference, the, there was the press release about the fuxifermin, and, and the results were, uh, you know, astounding. But on the other hand, there were results on a limited number of patients. So you, you don't know if these early signs will be uh, transla translatable to to, to a true effect in a, in a higher number of patients. So of course, you know, this, this, is, uh, this sounds very, very promising, but, but we need to test it in, in a higher number of patients. Uh, from, from the phase three trials, and you know, there are, there are now uh, five, five drugs in, 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 in phase three trials. And I'm pretty sure that at least, you know, I, I would say two to three of them, but I'm pretty sure that at least one will, 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 will make it to the end. And, uh, you know, who knows, even, even in combination, uh, we have, you know, we, we have already 
good data from uh, obeticolic acid, and it, it might get approval uh, this year from, from the FDA. We have very promising data from semaglutide, very promising data from lanifibranor, very promising data from uh, resmetirum. So all, all these are drugs that could well be uh, approved and, and who knows, also used uh, in combination at some point in the future. Amalia, <laughs> what would you think? Well, you know, um, Manolis mentioned semaglutide, and semaglutide is already approved for the treatment of obesity and diabetes. So actually, even if it's not approved for NASH, I think it can be already uh, used for, uh, for the treatment of uh, some of these people, because as Manolis said, that the data are encouraging, at least for uh, for NASH, uh, for fibrosis, the data were not uh, so good because also the placebo uh, group arm was uh, reducing uh, fibrosis, so there was no difference. But uh, I think uh, these um, GLP-1 agonists are really um, interesting because uh, they have shown a, a lot of uh, uh, good, uh, you know, good results. Uh, we will have, um, we have already terzepatide has been approved last week also in Europe. And uh, there are uh, only limited data on uh, the liver because uh, there is only um, a study where look uh, at uh, the liver, but, uh, you know, the data from, uh, and of course, you know, there was a reduction in uh, liver fat. The NASH trial is still ongoing. I think it's in phase two. Um, but uh, the, the dose in uh, the, the, the trial in obesity was really astonishing because it has uh, a reduction in, um, in weight uh, that was uh, in the obese population that was uh, similar to, to bariatric surgery. So, you know, with the, that um, reduction in body weight, and that was mainly fat, I think, you know, of course, the liver will uh, recover. Uh, we don't know how long it will take to recover, you know, and uh, if it is uh, superior to or uh, inferior to other drugs, but I think it's, uh, and also some other GLP-1 coagonist with uh, uh, the glucagon now is uh, under investigation. There are the triple agonists. It's, it sounds uh, like uh, it's an interesting, uh, area. And of course, you know, lanifibrin or the pumpy part looks uh, very good and also targeting metabolism. So as I said, I prefer, uh, I'm in favor of the drugs that uh, they target the metabolism and uh, probably they target inflammation as well. So they can prevent the fibrosis. Not sure if they cure, but you know, it's... Uh... <laughs> I guess that is really like an encouraging take-home message that I also uh, saw. Um, I mean, we, we do have these really very powerful cardiovascularly safe uh, metabolic drugs, like the GLP-1 receptor agonists, GLP-1 GIP agonists, GLP-1 glucagon agonists, um, that hopefully will become available, at least for the treatment of the comorbidities. And as Manolis mentioned, we have the second generation of liver-specific drugs. And I think without that, at least for the advanced stages of fibrosis or cirrhosis, an, an, a solely anti-metabolic drug will not be sufficient by itself. At least this is how I read the semaglutide in cirrhosis trial or the data that no fibrosis improvement was, was visible. I think it's the other way around. I mean, the fibrotic uh, drugs alone, they do not work. The metabolic drug probably alone, they do not work. And uh, it's probably time to find a good combination uh, of the two. <laughs> not easy, but... <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, um, I guess we had a fantastic meeting together in, in Dublin. 
Um, we are very proud to announce that next week the slide deck will become available. So um, with the, the best rated and ranked abstract that caused a lot of discussion, there will be a slide deck to all ESO members. And that should be another um, yeah, and another argument for you to join ESO, become an ESO member, will be available next week. So very proud that we had so much great science that, that we share. And with this, uh, we say goodbye from London, Manolis, Amalia from Pisa, me from Berlin. Goodbye. Goodbye. goodbye.